Hello everyone, welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. I'm Victor. And I'm Chris. And we're here today recording live from New Jersey. Yeah, this is our fourth episode. Um, and today we're going to start off by talking about the reconciliation process, which is sort of a subset of the budget process. Then we'll move on to talk a little bit about the official reporter of the House and the Senate, as well as a comparison to the official reporter of the House of Commons, uh, Hansard, as well as the reporter for the European Union. Uh, and then we'll move on to a discussion of the Holman Rule, which uh, Victor will lead a little bit more, and it's more a dis uh, an exploration of a the presidential power and the congressional power of the purse, and uh, how those two kind of intermingle in essentially allows the House of Representatives to control hiring decisions for the U.S. government instead of leaving all that authority to the U.S. president by changing, by directly changing the salaries of individual officers of the United States. To begin with, we're going to start with reconciliation. Um, so to give you a general definition of what reconciliation is before we dive into some of the more um, technical aspects, Basically, in the budget process, there is a sort of, you could just pass a tax budget um, or just a, a fiscal budget however you wanted. There's just, you could just pass a general budget. But more generally, what happens is that um, the houses of Congress will use a procedure called reconciliation, whereby they can up to three times a year, but generally it happens maybe twice, either sort of modify for an increase or decrease of the deficit or a um, raise or lowering of the debt ceiling. And this process sort of allows for a, a simplification of the uh, an otherwise harder to do process. But essentially what happens is that whereas a normal budgetary process might be open to Senate filibusters, reconciliation can happen with only a majority of the senators rather than 60. So it's a way to more easily pass budgetary measures. And the process essentially works by first, the first step of reconciliation is that the House and the Senate each have to pass separate reconciliation budget resolutions in the budgeting process. And then when they pass these resolutions, they instruct each, they, they assign to one of their committees uh, Separately, the House will assign to one of its committees or the Senate will assign to one of its committees or multiple committees to draft bills for the budget. And then once each House has passed, so once each committee from each respective House of the legislature has passed their own sort of budget bill, if there's more than one committee that's been assigned this, they'll pile that all into a single omnibus bill, which is a bill that has a bunch of separate sort of legislation lumped together. And then once the committees have created this omnibus bill, they'll each have to pass their respective, either the House or the Senate. And in the House, the process for doing this is determined in the same way that most House legislation is. The Rules Committee kind of determines the debate procedures, what are valid points of order, and can limit the scope of the bill. And all of that's able to be done by a simple majority. Well, and let's just, I just want to clarify a couple sure. of things. And so, yes, Chris correctly said reconciliation could be used for a number, for three times a year. But however, these three different times are limited to three different things. So, right. reconciliation bills can be passed on spending, revenue, and the federal debt limit. Exactly. And to clarify that a little bit more, it's up to three times a year. However, if you were to say pass a bill that did both change the debt ceiling and um, raise the deficit or increase the deficit by, I guess, spending without having a commensurate um, revenue source, that would count as two things. So you would only then be able to pass one more bill. So it's up to three, but it's really generally not three because most of the time, if you're going to do a spending bill, there's also some sort of revenue added in as well. Although I think that tends to be done a little bit separately. So it usually looks more like two rather than three. Now these uh, two or three bills that are passed, does the Senate only get one go at it? Or like, let's say, for example, the Senate passes a bill and then the House realizes that part of the bill needs to be modified. Does that, can that be modified and repassed in the Senate? Or is this just once one time go and then... 
so I believe it's three times unless you introduce a whole new budget altogether, okay. and then it resets the clock so you can do three more. However, if, as at least in the research that I saw, it's extremely rare that it, that happens. I think most of the time. So it seems like they want to make sure that whatever passed the Senate is what's the final right. version of legislation. Okay, that makes sense. But um, part of that reconciliation process in general is that it has to be approved by both houses. And like I said, the House's process is pretty normal for the House. It's the standard way the House passes legislation. It sets its rules and then it votes by a majority. In the Senate, though, um, it's a little bit different than the way the Senate normally, there's no sort of culture. Instead, um, in the Senate, when there's a reconciliation um, motion on the floor, debate is limited to 20 hours total. And then at the end of that 20 hours, something called a votorama. Uh, it's a strange name for it, but it's that's the name that's in all the, uh, the literature. A votorama happens at the end of 20 hours where all the remaining undebated amendments to this uh, reconciliation measure are voted on without debate by simple majority. So you basically just have at the end of these... So you'll have 28 total hours of debate, but then the, there's potentially a lot more amendments that haven't been addressed yet because you could have like, a potentially, I guess you could have one senator talk for those full 20 hours, and then at the end of that 20 hours, the vote, like the debate is closed and any remaining amendments have to be voted on. I'm wondering, so these 20 hours, once they pass by, now we have amendments. Now is the reason that debate ends is the reason why this defeats the filibuster because senators don't actually want to go through the hassle of using other dilatory motions? Or is there really a way for them to like, strictly cause a vote? Like, what happens if a senator submits a million different amendments? Or, like, for example, what happens if, if everyone decides to start making points of order on every single amendment and then debating the point of order? So, as I understand it, debate is strictly closed at that 20 hours. Um... And I don't believe that you can add new, it's, it's any pending, pending amendments at that 20 hour mark. So I don't think you continue, like you can't motion to amend after that point. You just have to motion amendments already. Yeah, so if you make an amendment before this process starts yeah. and, you, and you really don't like a bill, could you make a million amendments, for example? <sighs> to, so I, I believe the answer would be yes. However, I think in practice, the Senate operates somewhat on a bit more of a it tries to operate with a little bit more dignity than something like that. Like I could imagine that happening or something like that trying to d happen in the House, which is a little bit wilder. But the Senate tends to like to respect its rules a little bit more. Well, I mean, oh, so I'm just I'm just really just thinking back to when senators always like, for example, uh, mm -hmm. in our lifetimes, a senator read the the text of Green Eggs and Ham yeah. on the Senate floor during a reconciliation procedure. So my, my con curious concern was this done just for show, or could the senator have actually gone in gone in and tried to affect change by uh, debating or using various dilatory tactics to pass so, or to prevent the passage of this bill? I think one thing that might happen is that there is something that we haven't quite gotten to yet called the bird rule which sort of limits what is permissible provision of reconciliation so it, to a certain extent that would limit what you are allowed to um, motion to amend but to another extent if if the if you entered like a thousand different um, amendments that really weren't substantive anyway I have a feeling that they maybe would be ruled out of order or dilatory themselves and perhaps not entertained or taken up in the first place and second of all because it only requires a majority vote to do to vote on these amendments once you get past that 20 hours. Even if there were, say, a thousand amendments, I think um, it would be somewhat easier to get the required majority of senators to say, like, vote down these things rapidly. And then they would be able to vote on more sort of germane things. But I do think it's interesting to, like, uh, to me, the, the, the curious part of this is one that Votorama is just, that's the way that they talk about it. Uh, which seems just a strange way to talk. The original name for Rotorama, I think, is because what happens is the minority usually tries to get the majority on the record for, for a bunch of different points during mm -hmm. these Rotoramas. So they introduce a bunch of different amendments so that then later on when it's time comes election season, they can make campaign ads <laughs> how this senator voted against this. Uh, ah. That's... Like, for example, Republicans, what they like to do when they're in the minority in the Senate mm -hmm. is they like proposing all kinds of tax cuts in their amendments to a re reconciliation right. bill. And then when it comes election season, <laughs> they can advertise 
this senator voted against, voted to increase your taxes or something right. like that. And it bears in mind, especially here, that the debate isn't allowed on these amendments after you get to a voterama. So it would literally be like a um, amendment like one on the bill. It probably wouldn't be amendment one, but like amendment twenty on the bill. You know, cut spending to a certain department, and then it would be and you know. And let's hear the yeas and nays on this or something and then you would say no no because that's not really like we haven't talked about it it's kind of maybe a huge like change or something like that and so of course they're gonna vote it out of hand yeah that's you know kind of underhanded but it's it would be a nice way to get people on the official on the record even if you didn't actually get to really debate or discuss why you're voting no and just were like well, well i could give you a more nuanced reason but the rules don't allow it so Ah, that is a very sly. I, 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 I can't say I approve of that sort of sort of measures and underhandedness. Yeah, but so let's let's finish going through the full uh, timeline of a reconciliation procedure. Right. So after the Senate approves its version of the reconciliation measure, and the House also votes on one then a committee selected from both the House and the Senate will come together and work out a final bill um, pulled from both of those bills. I think in practice a lot of times the bills end up looking a lot more like what the Senate wants because it tends to be a little bit harder to... Um, well, one, I think the Senate tends to produce somewhat more moderated um, bills, and two, it can be harder to get things passed in the Senate than in the House. Well, I think this is also a remnant of the old age where instead of when we're in the now we're in an age of really hard partisanship gridlock between the two parties. Right. Whereas before, it actually seemed like the United States, there was this age where it was like, not the other party wasn't the enemy, it was the Senate that was the enemy, where like there would be a bunch of like progressive or just uh, new new sorts of ideas coming out of the House that weren't really seen in the Senate. And so the Senate was seen as like the enemy. But now it's your, the other party even in your respective chambers, seen as the enemy. Right. And so part of this this joint this joint session of the two, the House and the Senate conference, when this happening, any amendments that are proposed by conference report have to go back to the respective chambers and voted on and again voted on. However, um, in the Senate, once this bill comes back, then you return to a 60 votes to pass um, the bill. But to, again, because this whole procedure was created to sort of um, streamline the budget process and prevent it from being held up, there's a 10-hour limit to debate on the final draft of the bill, which is coming back from the conference. So, so does that mean that the bill is coming back from the conference? Does it still need 60 votes to, to pass? So it requires 60 votes to pass if at least any new amendments. Um, now, I believe, though, the if there are no amendments, it, I do believe it still requires 60 votes because the amendment process itself, like the voterama process, um, happens, but that leaves open the like ability to have future, uh, like you still have to go through the conference process, whereas the final vote is a, a sort of final vote on the fi finished product. Um, and I also think in practice there are almost always amendments because one side or the other will have um, Generally when bills are presented to the conference the house bill will even if it's generally in agreement with the Senate bill be somewhat different So I think in practice there's almost always some amendments that go back and then you need that 60 votes <sighs> But so once both houses agree on that single bill like any other piece of legislation it's sent to the president and then the president can either sign the bill into law, they can veto it, um, and then if it's vetoed, it comes back and it needs two-thirds of either house, or not either, both houses to override the veto. So once it's actually agreed upon, it is sort of passed like a normal piece of legislation. So I, so, but like, so for example, the bill has already passed the Senate, right. it just needs to pass the House. So I, mm -hmm. I think for the most part, this going back together as a House and Senate in this conference committee won't really happen because well, what basically happened is what passes the Senate then gets passed in the House for the most part uh, because that would be the way that they can actually pass something without needing the minority support in the Senate. Yeah, so 
Uh, that that might well be possible. I think though that I also think that another thing that could happen is in the what I what I know does happen mm-hmm. is in this conference report when it's made, uh, the the Senate has their representatives in the conference committee. The House has their representatives in the conference committee, and then they get together and make amendments that satisfy both houses. Right. But what ends up happening is some of these amendments are then ruled as actually. Um, they do not comply with the bird rule, so, right? So, Which we'll get to momentarily. So yeah. So, but this bird rule restricts those amendments made in conference committee from mm-hmm. that aren't complicit from being from voted on without sixty votes. So then, what usually happens, and this happened with the uh, the American Health the Care American Care Act. What happened was the Senate passed some bill. Bill House passed a bill, and then they came together in conference committee. And decided on another bill or amendments to the first two bills and then what happened was some of those amendments were ruled as non compliant with the bird rule so what ended up the result of that was the parliamentarian ruled that those were not compliant and so the house had to not agree to those non-compliant amendments so essentially the same bill was passed at the end of the day but whatever was ruled non-compliant with the bird rule was stricken from the conference committee bill right but to come to that Byrd rule, so the Byrd rule is a rule that's named after Senator Robert Byrd, and it is a rule which limits the scope of permissible provisions of reconciliation bills by permitting senators to object to certain provisions for being extraneous, which is just means outside the scope of what a budget bill should be doing. And this, the, so there are roughly six um, classes of impermissible provisions. Um, so one of them would be if it doesn't produce a change in the outlays or revenues of, you know, the budget, uh, which means like an outlay would be a spending, a revenue is a tax. Um, so another one is if it produces an outlay increase or revenue de- decrease when the instructing or instructed committee rather is not in compliance with its instructions. So as part of that process, as part of this reconciliation process, the House and the Senate will assign to one or more committees the task of producing a draft of a budget bill. And if in the instructions that the committee was given, they weren't allowed to or weren't instructed to touch on a particular, um, on like the revenue stream of a particular federal department and they did anyway, then that would be outside the scope of their instructions. Um, So a third class would be if it's outside the jurisdiction of the committee that submitted the title of the provision for inclusion in the reconciliation measure. So like, let's say for some reason, you know, the Armed Services Committee was given the task of preparing a budget and they decided to write up a provision about like, I don't know, um, transportation. It's not within the jurisdiction of that committee normally, so it's not permissible as a provision. Um, Fourth would be if it produces a change to outlays or revenues, which is merely incidental to non-budgetary, so to the non-budgetary components of the provision. Now this, I guess, would mean more like um, if the change in outlays or revenue isn't like, it would be more like if you were like, we're going to, what would be a good example of this? If if you wanted to pass a provision which would technically cr- cause an increase in spending because of what the provision is calling for, like if, I don't know, maybe if you wanted to pass something that was like, we're going to create, um, you know, a dolphin training program to detect mines, which is a thing that the Navy actually has, but supposing it wasn't, um, and if the, there was a provision that said we wanted to do this, that would, of course, create uh, a greater outlay of like finances because uh, you'd have to pay for buying up dolphins and their training and all of that uh, but it's only instant like it's incidental to non-budgetary issues but it would create a, a budgetary outlay so that's not really allowed like I guess what that provision is saying is you can't kind of backdoor in substantive policies to this legislative um, bill and six, and finally, if any of the provisions modify Social Security, then it's considered impermissible. And I think the reasoning for this is pretty straightforward, that um, Social Security is like the, it's a very uh, 
deeply guarded um, sort of welfare program that a lot of people who might otherwise not be super fond of a welfare state find wonderful. Um, I'm thinking mainly that like well, baby boomers are... It's been in existence for a very long time, so... True, but I think... Yeah. Continue. There's a lot of respect for, I guess, the bird rule. Yes. But, sorry, sorry, I mean <laughs> Social Security. But not. I think part of the reason there's a lot of respect for Social Security is because a certain segment of the population um, is very much has had the expectation that it will be able to rely on social security and to take that away from them or to modify it in any way without a whole debate solely on social security itself would cause a fair amount of um, unhappiness in the general public. True. But I mean, I, I think they also don't want to get, I think probably the senators at the time when the bird rule was adopted, they probably mm-hmm. did not want to remove their right to filibuster any changes to Social Security. I think that's probably why right. that existed, because they wanted to be able to filibuster Social Security changes. Yes. And to enforce the bird rule, it's done through a point of order. Mm-hmm. And while typically either the vice president or the president pro tempore of the Senate can rule on these points of orders, so you would think the majority would be able to enforce their rule regardless, because they could just make a point of order ruling it seems like historically there's been a lot of uh, collegiality around this uh, rule where they really leave it down to the parliamentarians. So I'm not sure if this is an official agreement or if this is just something that's uh, just kind of tacitly agreed to, but it seems like the real person who decides whether or not something's complying with the bird rule is the Senate parliamentarian, and then that ruling is made official by the chair. But hypothetically speaking, at any point, the chair could decide to rule differently. So, at any point, like if the if the party that wants to pass something through reconciliation also controls the vice presidency, which they probably do, because if they don't, why would you be worrying about reconciliation so much? Yeah. So, in the case where the party that controls the vice presidency also through controls also controls the Senate and the House, for example. They can then put their vice president or put the president pro tempore and have them rule that this something is consistent with the bird rule, even though it's not. And then you can pass anything you want that way. Right. But it, it is worth noting, um, as I think Victor touched on a little bit earlier, that that ruling um, can be overturned by the vote of 60 senators. Yes. So, so usually, whereas it's the majority of senators are returned, but also mm-hmm. if it's something that's you're, you're ruling that it really shouldn't be complying with the bird rule, but you say it is complying with the bird rule, then you're really getting rid of the filibuster in an indirect way right? by essentially changing up what the bird rule means. Mm-hmm. And this ruling can only be returned by 60 votes, which means that the majority, which is 51 votes or more, that don't want to overturn the rule will never vote to overturn the rule because they support a certain provision. Right, so just to recap on the whole reconciliation before we kind of give our thoughts on whether we think that's a good procedure or not, rather than just go through a normal budget process, which I guess maybe Victor can shed a little light on before we really I mean, this compare is, and contrast. I mean, this is technically the normal budget process. I mean, well, it is normal in the sense that because of the way that we've begun to do things, everyone, it generally, reconciliation is the process by which we use. But it is not technically required. You don't have to use reconciliation to pass a budget. Yeah, of course. You can always get 60 votes and agree to pass a budget. Right. And that does happen pretty often. In fact, fact, usually budgets are passed unanimously or near unanimously in the Senate. mm -hmm. And reconciliation is just used as a way for for partisanship and passing something that the other party doesn't agree to. Like, for example, the tax cuts in 2017 were passed through reconciliation. Right. So, do you think then that reconciliation is a good procedure to have, a good law that we have? Is it a good thing that we have that on the books that we're allowed to do this? I think I think reconciliation is great because at some point you need to pass laws through the Senate, and at some point the majority needs to govern. Right. And we've decided that we're going to give this set of rules that the majority can govern by through the Senate and it's like the bare minimum like you as the majority really needs to be able to decide how we're gonna spend our money how we're gonna 
get taxes. So you wouldn't be a fan of having a vehicle similar to reconciliation for all sorts of legislation. Uh, it should, I'm not think sure. The line should I, be I think, like I've said before, I think on a previous podcast episode, that I think the Senate, the senators do have the right to pass anything they want through the Senate as long as they properly debate it beforehand. And I think we really are gone are the days where the Senate calls another senator's bluff to uh, say they'll filibuster something and actually let them filibuster. I mean, humans can only talk for so long without stopping. Like we are, we are not perfect beings. Like we should allow that to happen, and we should pass a bill. Even we will properly debate it. We will hear everyone out. But when the majority gets their say, it should. We should call it the end of the well, day. If you're worried about proper debating, then then isn't reconciliation bad since it allows you you hit a twenty hour mark and suddenly we get into this wild land of voteroming? Well, to be really honest, it seems like this is something that senators have come together to create. Mm-hmm. There was there seems to be a lot of support behind creating the bird rule, and it seems like senators really do continue to abide by the bird rule, even though they aren't really required to. So, it really seems like. This is something that the Senate created to kind of put on a show where like some senators are really against something and some senators are really for it, but oh no, there's nothing they can do to stop it. Um, and I mean, I don't see why a senator couldn't submit a million amendments to the bill during this vote-arama, even though you, you think it might take a long time. Even if you spend a minute on each vote yeah. or 30 seconds, that's still like a million seconds, which is like more days than someone could waste by just talking and filibustering the traditional way. So, like, and this is, like, assuming that the Senate does not adjourn at any point, that they take these votes continuously for this number of days. So I really do not see why a senator who claims to really oppose a bill doesn't just submit a million amendments before reconciliation is, like, invoked on a bill. Yeah, well... I, I, I kind of think that it probably doesn't happen because they would recognize that if it happened one time, then the next time that their party was in power and they had a bill that they wanted to like get pushed through, then the other side would do the same thing. They would pass a million amendments and we'd be right back to where we started where you, you know, you're just going to need like, you might as well just not even use reconciliation if it's going to take longer than a filibuster could potentially take. Yes. And while I think that reconciliation is a good tool, some people, like, instead of reading Green Eggs and Ham on the floor, they could have actually done something about it. Mm-hmm. So I, so really, it just seems like this is, in some point, a show for the public. to So that even senators who are, like, really, really put on a face of being really, really anti-something in, in Congress can save face and not actually have to, at the end of the day, agree with something. But yet, they can still maintain their politics of of formally being against something. Fair enough. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you have any closing thoughts on this, or do you... I mean, I, I think I've said I've said what I think about yeah, it. I, I mean, in my mind, it seems like reconciliation works. It certainly does serve a, a, a purpose. I mean, so, yes, reconciliation works, and the way it formally works now, I think, is good, because if we didn't have reconciliation, then so many things wouldn't have happened that did that did happen. Right, and I am a fan of actually occasionally having our government make legislative change. Yes, no matter how limited it has to be due to reconciliation rules. But yeah. well, and that being said, so even though the bird rule has impermissible provisions, it's actually there are a lot of things you can still do that are permissible. I don't. I mean, like you can't make hugely massive changes to certain things, but. Insofar as it's related to the budget, you can still make any reasonable changes that you might want to make to a budget. It's just, if you're working on the budget, why should you be allowed to make a whole bunch of, like, it's a way to stop people from putting riders on a must-pass bill that's already being accelerated through an abnormal process. I don't really think that having a limit to what you can push through is a bad thing. In general, I think so, yes. In general, I think it's a good idea. But it's an idea that's out of necessity, out of the common method of campaigning by senators nowadays. So senators nowadays, they have to spend an X number of hours each day just calling their donors, asking for donations for their next Senate run. Senators nowadays, they have to go out campaigning. We just don't have the time we did in the past 
when there wasn't this instantaneous transportation along the country to debate things or to wait out a filibuster, whereas now we do. Yeah. We don't have this time now. Because now we have to. It's floor time is very valuable in the Senate now, and this is why we are forced to deal with things like reconciliation and make the best of a bad thing. Fair enough. All right. So I think with that we can move on to discuss our sort of a little bit smaller minor precedents. I wouldn't necessarily call them minor precedents, but we're gonna they're kind of rules or in- interesting things that we found that we want to tell you guys about, basically. Yes. So to start with, um, I want to talk a little bit about the official reporter um, and and what their job is in the House and what their job is in the Senate. And it's basically just the person. So the official reporter is the person who maintains the uh, journal of the House and the Senate. Um, And it's the clerk of the House and the clerk of the Senate respectively maintain them. And what these journals are is a recording it's like a fancy version of the minutes. It records all the um, substantive action taken by the House. It doesn't necessarily record in the Senate. It doesn't necessarily record every word that's said, um, but it records any. It records most of the motions taken. It records the votes. It records um, the names of the bills that are being discussed. It records the schedule, I guess, of the House. Schedule in the sense that it says like. We're open with the morning prayer, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did this. No. So it's yeah. Now, is the journal separate from the congressional record, or is the congressional record so the journal? I believe the record, the congressional record, is actually a complete record of everything that's said and done, whereas the journal is limited to action taken. Okay. Um, so, like, if you look at the journal, it's not going to say like. Um, you know, the senator from Wyoming took the floor and said this long thing. It'll just say, like, um, the House took up this bill and we voted to commit it to committee, or we voted on the bill and the A's, or the I's voted X and the y, uh, the nays voted Y. That's what the journal looks like, whereas I think the record is actually going to say, like, um, the senator from Wyoming got up, said all of this, sat back down, the chair um, said this in response, and it, it's a full record of everything that's said and done. So that is a little bit different than the actual full recording. It's, it's What I think is interesting is if you're actually trying to look through and figure out what the Congress did on a specific day, you can look to the journal to actually get a quick um, bird's eye view of actually what was done. Whereas you don't have to get bogged down in a whole bunch of the minutia. And interestingly enough, this journal is required by the Constitution. Um, it's required by Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution. And it has, the reason I'm interested in it is a little bit because it has some interesting historical antecedents. Um, and it's also interesting. Well, to me, it's interesting because if you ever get the time to read through it, it's a very interesting look at the way that Congress operates. You get to see like a thousand mile view of what's happening every day. But the inter- the other interesting part for me is that, as I said, there's some historical antecedents. If you look at the U- UK Parliament or the English Parliament from which the UK Parliament you know, springs, historically the journal hasn't always been kept um, or at least hasn't always been public- like publicly available. Um, in the past, it might have been kept, but it was kept private, and you couldn't see it. Uh, like it wouldn't like the United States Journal is published publicly. Um, everyone gets to see it. It's online. They used to have print editions. Um, however, in England back in the day, things had to specifically be asked to be publicized, and generally, the legislature was hesitant to do that. And so, historically, there's a recorder for their legislative body known as Hansard. Which initially started out as a private publishing public publisher, who would pay people to go sit in the galleries during meetings, record everything that was said or done, and then come out and write a private printed account, which would be sold. And eventually, um, that became so sort of essential, I guess, that it was made into the official reporter. So I think that personally is very interesting, and it sort of represents the increasing. 
I, I don't know if I would call it professionalization, but it represents the increasing democratization of the legislatures from very early sort of elite democracies, really what was an aristocracy that had voting procedures down into what we know today as sort of the modern parliamentary system, which developed into our also our um, legislative system. Well, I also just want to add, like, do you think that the founders thought that, I guess, everyone would have access to the journal, like any citizen could go into the house and have access to it? Or do you think that this idea of putting all votes down was more for, like, representatives to know and to, like, speak about it? So, I believe, and I haven't read, I would, I'm sure that there are some, because we have a big collection of the letters of everyone working on the Constitution and voting on it, I'm sure someone has written explicitly about it. I haven't read that, but if I had to offer my opinion, I believe that they would have thought it would be a public, a more public thing. Not necessarily that people would necessarily go out and go, but if you remember, the original people who were considered citizens of our new republic were elite members of society who would have been well-educated enough to understand what they were reading and who may have had a, a real stake in understanding and being interested in this also, if you think about the fact that for a lot of these uh, founding fathers, they considered it a, a civil sort of obligation to be aware of the goings-on of government. So I think that there was a sense that, yes, um, people would look at it, or at the very least, people should have the right to look at it, which is, I think, why there was an official record required by the Constitution, because it kind of holds, it, it's a way of holding the legislature to account, because everything that they've done, at least official actions that they've done, have to be recorded. So you can't necessarily hide the fact that you voted a certain way because the votes are recorded with the names of the people who recorded, who voted which way. So like if you voted for the, you know, Alien and Sedition Act, your name would be recorded as, yes, this is who I voted for. And the public could go and see that and know that, okay, this person supports this, which is a big deal because Historically, legislatures didn't always reveal who was voting for what, and even if they were recording it, they might not have recorded it for the public. So they might know for their own records who voted, but it wouldn't necessarily be released to anyone. And there are some reasons why that private voting might be useful if you are afraid of, say, the king seeing that you in the House of Commons voted for, you know, a measure which limited the king's rights he might try to punish you. Now there's a big conflict on whether or not that would be even allowed, but there are plenty of ways to make life harder for a representative if the executive thinks that that representative is acting against their interest. So, Yeah. I'm also wondering, do you think that the idea of a congressional record would have been seen as something that would have happened, or do you think that the idea of a congressional record if it existed back then, would be seen as, then it would be unnecessarily have a journal of the house. So I don't think that they anticipated a full record. I know in England at a similar time, um, there weren't official records in the sense that nobody was recording every single speech and there was real hesitancy to allow that because I think that representatives were afraid that if every speech were recorded, then there would be constantly that you couldn't have an open and honest dialogue of everything that needed to be said because you might have to say things or you might say things in a way that if you were running for election you wouldn't want heard in a particular light because maybe it undermines the official position of your party but you're acting on your conscience or you're speaking in a way that you think will be more palatable to the other um, representatives so maybe if you're trying to convince if you're trying to convince people who don't necessarily agree with you then you might put an argument a certain way whereas if you're talking to people who already agree with you you might put it in a different way and so for voters who may have elected you because they thought you stood for one thing they might be confused when it sounds like you're talking about or advocating for another thing so there might be some risk uh, from a representative standpoint of uh, being misinterpreted by the public. On the other hand, I also think that there isn't a lot to 
I, I, I would empathize with that position because I know that there are times when you want to be able to say things in a, without worrying about the effect on your campaigning or your electability, where you want to actually achieve action and make compromises that would look ugly if they're recorded and brought to the light of day. But I also think that, again, if, if, if you're supposed to be the representative of the people who elected you, then there, you really shouldn't have to be afraid of what you say if you're you know, doing your job correctly. If you say something that maybe your representatives might not totally agree with, on reflection they should agree with you, or on reflection about hearing that your uh, electors didn't really approve of what you said, you might either change your beliefs to be more aligned with theirs, or you might you know, win new supporters to replace those that you lost and thus might balance it out. So I mean, but no, I didn't really think that the founders anticipated a complete written record of everything they did. Um, because I think at the time that would have been very challenging mm -hmm. to really necessarily accomplish. Like you would have had someone being a scribe who would have written down because there wasn't an accurate recording device or anything. So it wouldn't have necessarily even, so there's a risk that whoever is being the recorder might fudge what a line from one senator or another. And so I think back before you could have accurate, you know, a guaranteed recording with precision, there wasn't an anticipation that every single thing would be memorized and written down correctly. Okay. But I think that was partially a limitation of technology, partially a reflection of the times where not a, there wasn't the same sort of sunshine laws that we have today or the expectation of those sorts of things. Yes, that makes sense. So if, if someone was going to question what formally happened during a congressional debate, would you go to the journal or would you go to the congressional record, I guess, nowadays? Nowadays, I I think you would probably go, well, the journal records the actual action taken. So if you were trying to question whether or not something happened, I think you would look to the journal. Mm -hmm. But if you were saying, well, you said this and I said this, you'd have to look to the record because that's where it would be lodged. So, and like, to people who know about Robert's rules or other sorts of parliamentary procedures that are used in a non-governmental function, you would say the analogy of the journal would be like a minutes of a meeting. Um, well, yeah, it, I guess it depends on the quality of the secretary who's taking the minutes because, but, but yes, for the most part, it'd be looking at the minutes would be similar to looking at the, um, the journal. And something the record doesn't typically typically exist in most parliamentary bodies, I guess. But if like if someone made a full like let's say video or audio recording of a meeting, that would be like similar to what you the information there is similar to what you would find in a record. Right. Although I think I think we would come back to a similar situation where even if something was said on the recording, if the recording is not the official record of the action taken, then it doesn't really matter what's on the recording matters what's on the official okay. yeah. thing because it's similar to like a house can like a legislative body can amend a prior minute minute a prior meetings minutes and then whatever the house votes on as this is what the minutes were is what the minutes were regardless of necessarily if it happened or not okay right because at the end of the day it's a reflection of what the majority of the members kind of want it to reflect Yes. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk about is the Holman Rule. So the Holman Rule is really something that pits the power of the purse of Congress versus the executive branch, which can control who's part of the executive branch, can control hiring and firing of a lot of the executive branch officials, officers, and subordinate officers, or inferior officers as is referred to in the Constitution. So. As a background to the Holman Rule, starting from the 1830s, the rules of the House kept the kept the distinction between what are were known as general appropriation bills and just general legislation. So before that, the House would used to pass certain bills known as general appropriation bills, and general appropriation bills were not exactly what they sound like. General appropriation bills were basically appropriations for executive or for other spending, but also basically any sort of catch-all that any representative could introduce amendments to and get adopted. 
So these general appropriation bills became known as having many riders, many other sorts of many sorts of other provisions that you wouldn't necessarily expect from just the idea of appropriations bill. So actually the House rules, if you read them in detail, they say no appropriation shall be reported in any general appropriation bill. So basically what that means is you have to make bills that are specific for appropriation and not for any other sort of legislation that doesn't spend money or doesn't get in revenues. And then once this rule is adopted, uh, there was language that where representatives wanted to, for example, reduce the amount of money they're spending on something, but in order to reduce it, you need to have some operative language that allows you to say, oh, if we're no longer going to fund 12 officers, and instead we're only providing money for, let's say, nine officers, let's say, let's say we have some kind of a tax analyst that decides whether or not something should be covered by a tariff or something like that. And let's say instead of having 12 of them, we reduce that to nine. By law, it would still say that there are 12 people working in this uh, government office. Originally, what this rule had the House to do was to say that, oh, if we're going to reduce this, the amount of money we appropriate for this from 12 to nine, then we can also reduce the number of officers that are appropriated as being only nine. The Holman rule was adopted to allow an even more specific regard. So the Holman rule allows one to not only change the amount of spending, but also to do any sort of legislative changes to the effect needed to do this change in spending, particularly a reduction in spending. So this is exactly what this rule would do is it would say, I want to reduce the salary of this specific person to this amount. That is something that's permitted by the Holman rule. But that's an extreme example of the use of the Holman rule. More general use of the Holman Rule is to, for example, reduce this reduce spending to a particular department by taking two departments or two agencies as part of the department and turning them into one department. That's something that you could do under the Holman Rule. You can also tell a specific government agency or a specific government department how you want them to spend their money by reducing the amount of total money they allocate to that department. So let's let's go over the exact history of this Holman Rule. So the Holman Rule was at first adopted around the uh, around 1876 when it was first adopted and then it became a permanent rule a few years later and then this rule was essentially part of the lexicon of congressional procedure all the way until 1983 where the ruling party at the time decided to modernize the Holman Rule and not allow for such a precise control of the budget. So instead of saying that the Holman rule allows you to change the specific individual salaries, now you can only say that we're going to reduce the salary of this department or the amount of money allocated to a certain government department. Additionally, the House rules allow for, when the Holman rule was in effect, allow for germane provisions that retrench expenditures by reduction of the amount of money covered by the bill. So basically what this means is this rule allows for amends which generally reduce the expenditures of the Department of the United States, but does not allow for reduction of salaries of specific employees or particular programs. So that is the current procedure. In order to reintroduce the Holman Rule, the 115th House, which was the House that existed from 2017 to 2019, put as a standing order as part of the previous language to allow for the reduction of the number and salary of the officers of the United States. So essentially now any House of Representatives, whenever a bill came up to a floor vote, can say, oh, I want this person to be paid this amount of money, as long as that amount of money is less than the amount of money they're being paid for now. So previously the rule only allowed that you to increase salaries but not decrease salaries, and now you can, do, you can do both. You can increase salaries under the general order, general rules of procedure, and now you can decrease salaries based on this new amendment that the 115th Congress introduced. For example, here's something that now in the 115th Congress was considered proper procedure. For example, Representative Gosar offered the following amendment. The salary of Mark Gabriel, the administrator of Western Area Power Administration, shall be reduced to $1. So, representative in Congress can change and arbitrarily change arbitrarily the salary of any employee of the United States. 
this is the power of the Holman rule. So a powerful representative can then decide to change anyone's salary to a very small amount and make them have to quit working so they can actually afford to, <laughs> afford to live in the United States. But they can't actually fire anyone directly. And why can't they fire anyone directly? Because that would that would be part of a uh, general appropriation bills, and general appropriation bills are not allowed because that would be subs- substantially changing legislation by eliminating their jobs. Whereas by saying that their salary is one dollar, you're not getting rid of their jobs. They can keep working if they if they want to. It doesn't violate federal minimum wage laws because Congress itself can pass laws that. are exempt from the federal minimum wage because they're the ones who set the minimum wage. So essentially, this is a way to get someone to leave their jobs, but in a way that doesn't violate parliamentary procedure. So and also just go a little bit back and give a um, history of why this needed to be adopted in the first place was because (laughs) when this uh, rule prohibiting general appropriation bills was written, it was interpreted to mean that you can only amend the, the... specific appropriation bill by increasing salaries but not to decrease salaries then at some point a representative by the name of Holman added a rule saying that you can also decrease the salaries of individual uh, employees of the federal government so I'm curious who was what was the impetus behind the um, 115th Congress's change from a, a a narrowing of the Holman rule back to what I think is a little bit more reasonable back to the traditional Holman rule of decreases and increases. I think this was a push from the Freedom Caucus to kind Mm -hmm. of rein in government spending with the idea that if you can reduce individual salaries, that's still reining in government spending. Right. After all, like, if you reduce enough individual salaries, that's potentially millions in savings. Or billions, potentially. And who make up the Freedom Caucus? Not necessarily the specific members, although if you can name them, impressive, but I mean more... But I do know specifically that Representative Amash is no longer part of the Freedom Caucus, but he was a co-founder. And in general, the Freedom Caucus advocates for what sort of things? Like very conservative ideas in Congress, um, I would say. They are essentially a manifestation of the Tea Party in Congress. Okay. A very right-wing side of the Conservative Party the Republican Party put forth this amendment that allows them to decrease spending. and But this was put as an amendment not to the general rules, but to, as a standing order just to see if they want to continue doing this in a future Congress. Mm-hmm. But since the Republicans lost control of the House, this was not readopted because the Democratic caucus did not feel a need to adopt this as a rule. Um, but this rule did remain in Congress for a very long time. It was there for almost, uh, for actually about maybe time-wise not exactly a century, but almost a century, from uh, 1876 to 1983, with actually a few gaps every once in a while. There was a, uh, maybe like, I think at most there was a six-year gap in that time where there, mm-hmm. the home rule wasn't in effect, but in general it did exist. And was it used often? Like where, I, when I say used often, I mean, were people, were individuals or groups of individuals often having their salaries raised and lowered? But may, I mean, I'm not yeah. so concerned about the raising yeah. of salaries, although there's a potential corruption. So, so you can there. raise salaries, but you, I mean, you don't need the home rule to raise right. salaries. You only, you, you only need the home rule to lower salaries. Right. So was that, in, like, so, was yes. that a common enough procedure, though, that it was... Was there a reason for it to be stick around as long as it did, or was it just yeah, sort of so, on the books? So yeah, the Holman Rule was used to eliminate 29 customs positions in 1932, oh. and then another eight in 1939. It allowed a provision to reduce the number of naval officers in 1938, hmm. and uh, essentially was used to disallow filling of vacancies of independent agencies until that agency's workforce had been reduced by 10% in 1952. I'm curious, although this again might be testing your knowledge to the limit, do you know which party was generally in power in Congress when this was happening? Well, I'm pretty sure the Democrats had essentially an unparalleled control of the House for that for most of what, for most from of the, the 30s 20th up century. Until. Yeah, so that's that's somewhat interesting. You wouldn't necessarily expect them to be the ones to be engaged in lowering salaries that often. You can, I mean, at least today, you think of. Democrats and you think of the party of like government expansion or at least that is what propaganda tells you to think but I mean there was so sub- substantive changes in the party in the last hundred years I would say so too so but yes this is quite interesting but until t- 2017 it actually appears it was never used to target 
a specific individual. So it might have been used to target a group of individuals okay. or a pretty narrow group of individuals. But yeah. until, until 2017, it was never really used to cut a specific worker salary. But that threat always existed. Mm-hmm. So like people knew that you could do that with the home rule. It's not like they okay. ever... They just didn't um, need to necessarily do that. Yes. And so I'm curious then, what, was it 2017? Was that... Well, that was when this uh, when Representative Gozar tried to set the salary of Mark Gabriel to one dollar. Um, I'm curious, was Mark Gabriel just uh, did he do something while in his role that triggered this, uh, or was oh, it just oh, generally? Oh, this was uh, so yeah. So I can tell you. So as far as I understood, Representative Gozar thought that this agency, uh, the Western Power Administration, which was part of his district. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought that it was a corrupt agency and that it was um, improperly like improperly giving managed. out money to via government contracts or something of that sort. So, so he really wanted to set an example. And okay, to, so it wasn't like the they took up a specific policy action and he was like, I don't approve of this, I'm going to circumvent. But I mean, I think that his arguments, I think that might have also included specific policy action, okay. how they were awarding... Right. But it, so, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a political policy, though. It wasn't like we're going to prefer some political option. It was literally the running of your agency is on the policy ground that we don't want corruption to be how our agencies are run. I want to reduce your salary. It wasn't like he was a, uh, like, if Representative Gosar is Republican, it wasn't like this, um, this Mark, what was his name again? Gabriel. Mark Gabriel wasn't, say, like a Democrat, and he wasn't going after him for purely partisan reasons. It was substantive. Or semi-substantive, I would say, yes. Semi-substantive, okay. Um, also, a different re- representative tried to eliminate the budget analysis division <laughs> of the Congressional Budget Office. And what grounds were there for that? I think he was advocating that it would be more efficient, and you can, it, you can put the the responsibilities of all 89 employees with the office of the director of the Congressional Budget Office. Okay. Uh, so I'm not sure how big the office is, but 80, 89 people. Right. Yeah. And that's 89 people and their government salaries. Did that, so are you able to eliminate any pension benefits that they might have been due as well? or I mean, that might be a violation of the full faith and credit clause of the United States, but potentially, I don't know. Um, so. Just to summarize, this rule can be used to introduce amendments that so that pays only allocated to a number of employees that's less than the statutorily allowed number of employees right. to reduce the number of officers of the United States to consolidate and remove officers and to, for example, replace uh, civilian employees with government like army personnel, for example. Right. And this. And all of these things I just mentioned have actually been used in the past or proposed in the past okay. to be used under this rule. So um, I also am now interested. Th- so I can understand if you wanted to. I, I can understand why one might want to lower a person's salary to one dollar to force them out of office or things like or or a group of people since it seems that it wasn't generally used for one person. But how does this how how does this play into the president's sort of executive authority and his ability to appoint the people he wants and to run the executive branches he sees fit. Well, well, the president, as as the president himself and no one else, is constitutionally entitled to a consistent salary throughout his time in office. Well, I believe the Supreme Court is as well. And any judges. But judges' salaries can't be lowered, or but they can be raised at any time. I mean... President's, the president's salary has to remain fixed during his time in office. Okay. So that is something that, yes, that... Um, that is prevented, so Congress can't change the president's salary during the president's time in office. But uh, if the president, if any other, it doesn't have to necessarily let the president hire other people to help him with the job. And so if the president wants to go around enforcing any laws that he sees fit, he can do so, but not necessarily with the support of other people. Right. So I'm curious, could this be a way? So let's say the president decides to exercise his discretion and tell his, I don't know, his attorney general not to prosecute a certain class of. You know crimes like I think under the Obama administration, the Attorney General was instructed not necessarily to look so hard at marijuana policy sure. violations. Could if Congress was really quite perturbed by this, they then lower the salary of everyone in the AG's office to like a dollar to force them out, and then once they quit, re-raise the salaries. I mean, if they have the votes to override a presidential veto. 
course. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so this measure still these measures all still need to pass with the. So this is this is a parliamentary procedure of how to amend a certain bill before okay. the House of Representatives. So once this bill is amended and it's passed by both houses of Congress, then yes. It's not quite as potentially damaging to the executive but, power as it might seem. Maybe now it might not seem that way, but I would. I'm, but once when this rule was active, I would think it would be because every once in a while there's like a must-pass legislation, especially when we're during the debt ceiling wow. negotiations. Like, so this could be attached as a rider to something. If the Holman rule is in effect, yeah, like let's say our government shut down and we need to reopen the government, but some very uh, enterprising legislator decides to attach a rider to some legislative bill that's reopening the government, saying that this person can't get paid. That person will not be paid if that law passes. That's interesting. Now, I'm curious, would this have affected, say, if there were, like, an independent um, council who was operating for some reason? Yeah, of course. So you could lower... I mean, I'm not sure if an independent council is necessarily working for the salary, because I think oftentimes they're probably doing it for other reasons. But in theory, could this be a way to lower their salary? I mean, yeah, it could be even a way to for you to... Com- you could probably... <laughs> Consolidate and eliminate the independent council office completely, and consolidate it, for example, with the duties of the attorney general. Right. So there are, <laughs> and if you had a president who is potentially um, not a fan of an independent council, but whose Senate and the House are controlled by the same party as the president, this could be, a, you know, one way to deal with the yeah you know, of rule of law. Of course, you could. You could. I mean, Congress any time is allowed to restructure the structure of the Department of Justice, any federal department that's not constitutionally specified, and none of them are. Right. So they can change the structure of the department, of course. And specifically, this type of procedure is used to uh, say how much we're going to pass budget um, rules mm-hmm. of the United States government. And as a matter of fact, if there's a specific type of bill where we're only, advoc- we're only allocating, for example, appropriation spending, uh, so not a general appropriation bill, but a specific appropriation bill. This exception allows you to make amendments that do change things in a way that does reduce expenditures. Right. So I'm curious uh, then also, do you think that this is a good rule to have? Like, I, now I understand the modern Democrat Party, at least in this, uh, this current Congress, has decided mm, we don't necessarily want the Holman Rule. Do you think that there is good reason to have one, though? Do you think, or personally, I think it would, I'm not sure I think it'd be a good idea or a fair thing to be able to raise or lower a federal employee salary kind of on a whim. I mean, I I prefer a model that looks a little bit more like upon appointment, a salary change could go into effect. So like if, so as long as somebody is in the office, their salary can't be raised or or can't be lowered. I could understand raising it for cost of living and things like that. So I think a good, a better system would be, you can change on a fly the salary that a person that a new employee will be paid, or a new appointee will be paid in the same role. But I'm not sure I love the idea of being able to change somebody from getting say their normal salary to suddenly one dollar. Do you uh, think that there's good reason to have this role, or do you think this is more just a way for Congress so, to avoid actually just getting rid of those jobs officially? Or? So I think this is a not necessarily the best rule if we have the ideas of the civil service protections in mind. So I, I really like the idea of the civil uh, service and how most federal employees should be serving due to their merit, not due to their political connections, mm-hmm. for example. So I actually, not necessarily a good idea to keep home and rule, right? Because it essentially, but it's in the same sense, like, should we really even allow the opposite where we can increase someone's salary arbitrarily as well? Yes. I mean, I think I'm opposed to just arbitrary changes generally. Yeah. But is it necessarily, I mean, is if, if Congress thinks it's worth doing, is it arbitrary or is it reasoned based on our representatives and government? So if we are moving away from the idea of civil service protections, maybe it is a useful thing, but I don't. I don't think we should be moving away from that idea. Okay, I mean, I, I generally agree with that. If anything, I think. Uh, I mean, the civil service is already well. I think quite well protected in some ways, but I, I don't think it ever hurts to have a more politically independent civil service. Uh, do you think though that if in the future the home and world might see resurgence, do you know if there's 
still support for it in Republican caucuses, or is it generally? I do not know what other people think. I can't, I'm not a mind reader, but <laughs> I imagine that. Well, that's good to know. Some congressmen would support any sort of parliamentary rule that allows you to spend in a more, I guess, uh, as what people would say, a responsible manner. Okay. So I, I, I would see the same thing, I think, if, if there were a Republican Congress, a Republican-controlled House of Representatives in Congress. I imagine that you would see a resurgence of this rule. The one thing that could really this rule could really be used for mm-hmm. is, for example, let's say the president and vice president really didn't get along mm-hmm. and there was some kind of bill, must-pass bill, right? right. Uh, like, for example, then the president could just ask someone to set the vice president's salary to zero or one dollar. Couldn't the president just ask the vice president to resign, though? Don't what? his officers see, serve at his pleasure? Not the vice president. The vice president no. has a constitutional role. The vice president can't be fired except by impeachment and conviction in the Senate. So this is a way to bypass. Not bypassing the. There's. You're not saying you have to leave. You still get to keep the job. Fair enough. So and interestingly, then the vice president doesn't share the president's protection that the president's either can't be raised or lowered yeah. in the term of office. The vice president is, you know, out there yes. floating around. No. In fact, I think the vice president, as it stands right now, is actually paid out of the vice president's legislative duties and not out of the vice president's executive duties. Interesting. Because the vice president is the president of the Senate, and I think the vice president is paid in the same manner the Speaker of the House is paid. Because really? they're like a, the main officer of the House of Congress. Huh. So do you have any closing thoughts? or? No, I mean, I think it's good to have knowledge of the Holman Rule, and I mean, it depending on how you feel... It, you can feel about it in both ways. I mean, I think there's arguments to be made for the Holman Rule. I think there's arguments to be made against the Holman Rule, but definitely an interesting rule, I would say, because it allows for such specific ways for, I guess, individual representatives to assert their authority and to, for example, really bring to head any issues they might have with specific executive branch officials. I am curious about one last thing as well. So... We, we are prohibited from passing bills of attainder, which, for those of you who might not know, are bills aimed at a specific person, um, generally, in the Constitution. How is this not... I mean, of course, it's not outlawing a specific person, which is generally what a bill of attainder is, um, well, but it seems very, at least in the spirit of not passing legislation that only applies to one person. Well, I think you're thinking in a hyper-modern sense in that, in that mm-hmm. way. Like, historically... The function of preventing a bill of attainer was to prevent the government from arbitrarily denying you your liberty. Okay. Whereas just saying that the government's going to pay you less money is not denying your liberty. You're still free to work for someone else. You're still free to continue working for this lower salary. I mean, there's nothing saying that the salary has to be reduced to one dollar. Maybe, maybe Congress, maybe all of a sudden we have a financial crisis and Congress wants to reduce salaries by fifty percent different people because they feel like we can no longer afford to pay that. That's a reasonable thing for Congress to do, uh, depending on how bad our economy is going. So if your employer doesn't want to pay you this much money anymore, it, it can happen in the private sector. So this is a way for it to happen in the public sector if so desired. All right. Well, I think that's, I think that's a fair way to organize things. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to us. Uh, this is Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. We hope to see you next time. Uh, if you have any questions or suggestions, please write to us. Uh, contact information will be available in the podcast description. Thank you.